Well, we were doing a series that we were calling Nehemiah Gospel Rebuild. We're going to talk about what happens when God comes into our life and rebuilds broken cities and families and people. Uh, we are going to be reading Nehemiah chapter 3 today, and uh, I'm going to need your prayers. It is a long chapter filled with lots and lots of names. So I'm going to read those names to you, trusting that God's word is inspired and infallible and inerrant and useful for correction and training and all of righteousness. And I encourage you to read along, number one, so you know how many more names until it ends, uh, and B, so that you can see that some of the names that I will be reading uh, bear little in common with the words and letters in the very name. But I'm going to read them quick and with great confidence, and it, hopefully it will sound good. This is Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, one thing, in all seriousness, keep this in mind. All of these names are not just names. These are people that you're going to meet in heaven if you trust in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have a tendency to focus on the great heroes of the faith and the great names of the Bible. There are no unsung heroes in the family of God. God loved these people so much that he put their names in the Bible. Isn't that cool? Let's read. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. Next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The son of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Bechariah, the son of Meshabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joida, the son of Basha, and Meshalam, the son of Besoida, repaired the gate of Yashanah. They built its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatriah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Mephronite. Uh, I, I practiced that. That's a tough one. Uh, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, there we go, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphael, the son of Hur, ruler of half the, half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jedediah, the son of Harumphah, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalab, the son of Halahesh, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. That's an interesting detail. 
Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They repaired it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rahab, ruler of the district of Beth uh, Hacharem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered, its, covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, uh, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kilah, repaired for his district. After him, the brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of uh, Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masalah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living in Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate. On the east and the, project, on the, and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaluf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths of the merchants repaired. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for your word. Even the lists, even the names, we ask that you would speak for your servants listen. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
In 2015, a Chinese construction company built a 57-story building in just 19 days. 57 stories in 19 days. They think that they can build the world's tallest building in just seven months. I guess we'll see. Now, it's a pretty impressive thing to behold, but if you think that's impressive, then you don't know Nehemiah. In 445 BC, Nehemiah, with no building experience at all, rebuilt the whole city of Jerusalem in just 52 days. How did he do it? How did one man with no building experience at all, rebuilt the entire city of Jerusalem in just 52 days? Well, the answer is, he didn't. He needed a lot of help. He needed a team. He needed the church. So do we. If we want to build a healthy culture of worship and discipleship and evangelism and service right here in Pensacola, we need each other. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. We need faith and hope and love. And I think if we work together, empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we too can accomplish great things. Now, normally, when pastors come to Nehemiah chapter 3, they run, they hide, they move on to chapter 4, hoping that no one notices. And for the record, we're going to do that later on in the book. We're trying to finish this series before we get to our Advent series, and so we will skip some chapters and lists and names, so no judgment to anyone who skips this chapter of the book. It is tough to preach on a list of unfamiliar names and places, and I imagine that it's even tougher to listen to someone preach on a list of unfamiliar names and places, so I get it. I really do. Now, for the pastors who do decide to tackle this chapter, Nehemiah 3, the focus tends to be on the teamwork aspect of the story. Some themes include, there's no I in team, we're all in this together, it takes a village, teamwork makes the dream work. Now, that is a very important part of the story, and we'll definitely talk about teamwork this morning. But this week, as I read and reread this chapter, Desperately looking for the prayer of Jabez, hidden somewhere in the text of this, two related questions came to mind. What kind of city was Nehemiah building? And what kind of church should we be building? I think Nehemiah and his friends were doing so much more than rebuilding a city or rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. I think they were building a culture. What kind of culture were they building? And how can we build one just like it right here? If you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline. We're going to walk through this chapter, and as we do, we're going to see five things about the kind of church that God wants us to build. Nehemiah built a city 
that glorified God? How do we build a church that glorifies God? How do we build a gospel-shaped culture here at this church that affects not only everyone who gathers here to worship on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, how do we build a gospel culture that shapes a city? How do we build a gospel culture that shapes the world? Now, normally, before I launch in, I ask you if you're ready, but I'm not sure if I'm ready. So uh, we're going to all have some fun and tackle this list. Let's jump in. Are you ready? All right, let's go. First big idea, God wants us to build a church where leaders get their hands dirty. God wants us to build a church where leaders get their hands dirty. Verse 1, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests. Now, before we get to Eliashib, the high priest, and his brothers, the priests, let's remember where we are in the story. At the end of chapter 2, after a long season of prayer and a short season of planning, Nehemiah urged his fellow Israelites to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, a city which had been destroyed by the Babylonians 140 years earlier. If you have your Bibles open, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. Again, context. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. It was a huge task. And there were some very vocal critics. But the Israelites vowed that working together, they would rebuild the city, the city of God. It was a task with rich, deep theological significance. Remember that the city had been destroyed and the exile had happened because of the people's sin. God had repeatedly told the people of Israel, if you continue to sin, if you continue to worship idols, if you continue to exploit the weak and the vulnerable and the poor, then I will destroy your city. I will bring it to ruins. I will scatter you to the four winds. I will deport you from the promised land. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God said, if you repent, if you believe, if you confess your sins and ask for forgiveness, then I will forgive you. And not only will I forgive you, I will restore you. I will bring your people back home and you will live in the promised land once again. Now I should note that that's still God's message to us. Sin separates us from God. Sin brings our lives into piles of ruins. God's grace brings us back home. Jesus brings us back home. 
Jesus is our healer. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the restorer of broken people and broken families and broken cities. That's what the resurrection is all about. There is no death that can be overcome by the life of Jesus Christ. So here we come in chapter 3. The time to build is near. No more talking. No more speeches. Who goes first? The priests. Eliashib, the high priest, goes first. The spiritual leaders of Israel go first. They're the first ones on that wall. Here's the principle. Spiritual leaders should always be the first ones on that wall. Whether you're a senior pastor like I am, whether you're an assistant pastor, whether you're a director or an elder or a deacon or someone who teaches a Bible study or simply a mom or a dad seeking to lead your children into the faith, whether you're a leader in our city or a leader in your job in the community, spiritual leaders go first. Christian leaders Get their hands dirty. We don't coach the game from the sideline. We don't watch the game from the comforts of our living room. We don't say it's somebody else's job. We say if there's work to be done, if there's criticism to be had, if there's suffering to be endured, then I will go first. And conversely, if there's glory to be had, if there's praise to be received, if there's compliments to be given out, then I will go last. No one embodied this more than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the ultimate servant leader, even though he is and was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, not merely the earthly high priest, but the great high priest, the ultimate high priest. He served the disciples by washing their feet. He served the weak by healing the sick and providing for the poor. He served us by laying down his life on the cross. In the church, when we say the leader goes first, we're not talking about the buffet line. We're talking about building a culture where the greatest among us serve so that the least among us might be served. God wants us to build a church and a city and a culture where leaders get their hands dirty. Here's the second big idea. God wants us to build a church where the gospel comes first. Verse 1, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Why the sheep gate? What's the, what is that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. The sheep gate was the gate in the wall of the city where the sacrificial animals entered the city of God. People would bring their sheep right to that gate. They would walk those sheep right through the city, straight to the temple, where they would be sacrificed for the people's sins. 
Throughout the whole Bible, we're told that the sacrificial system was symbolic. It pointed beyond itself to something even greater. It was meant to teach us that though we are guilty of sin, though we all deserve to be punished, God graciously and generously provides a substitute, an animal who will die in our place. In the Old Testament, the altar was the place where God's justice and mercy came together in a brilliant, beautiful, life-giving way. On the altar, a spotless, innocent lamb died in the place of spotted, guilty sinners, people exactly like us. Now, with that in mind, fast forward to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's no more altar. The altar goes away. Why? Because it's replaced by the cross. In the New Testament, the place where God's justice and holiness come in direct contact to his mercy and grace and love happens on the cross when Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, Our substitute, our redeemer, our mediator dies in our place. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why the priests built the sheep's gate. But the question is, why did they build it first? They built it first because there's nothing more important than the grace of God. They built it first because there's nothing more significant than the gospel of God. They built it first because there's nothing that is more important than Jesus. Without his sacrifice on the cross, without his death in our place, we have nothing. We have no church, we have no grace, we have no purpose or hope or joy, nothing. That's why the gospel is the center of all that we preach and teach at Pinewoods Church. That's why the gospel is the very thing that forms and shapes our relationships with each other inside the church. That's why the gospel is the very thing that motivates us to evangelize the lost, to serve the poor and the weak and the helpless and to live each day for the glory of God. My friends, we are not here for the coffee. I love coffee. Coffee is a gift from God. If you're a visitor, we're giving you the mug. Sorry to spoil it, David, but we're giving you the mug because we love it. It's, that's not why we're here. We're here for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're building a culture where Jesus and the gospel come first and last and in the middle and everywhere because there's no one and nothing more important than him. Here's the third thing. God wants us to build a church where hurting people can heal. Before Ezra and Nehemiah arrived, the people of Israel were hurting. The temple had been destroyed. They had no place to worship. Many of their homes had been destroyed. They had no place to live. 
The walls of their city had been torn down, broken down, so they were completely vulnerable. They had no protection from their enemies. My friends, in the ancient world, and really even up through the medieval world, if you were a city without walls, you did not have a city. Because any enemy could come and just wipe you out, and you'd have no protection from the outside world. You were constantly stressed. You were constantly worried. You were beaten down, broken down. It was terrible. Without a wall, hurting people couldn't heal. Without a wall, restless people couldn't rest. And so for the people of Jerusalem, the wall was about so much more than a wall. It represented God's power and God's provision and God's protection. I think that thought was in the mind of the writer of Proverbs when he wrote in Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. He's talking about the wall. The wise man, the, the beat down man, the defeated man, the discouraged woman runs to the wall and they find safety and security. I believe that God wants our church to be a place where hurting people can heal. I believe that God wants our church to be a place where people who have been abused and mistreated and neglected out there in the world can come in here to find healing and hope. I believe that God's call for our church is to be a place where bruised people aren't broken by a culture of legalism and fear and shame. Now notice this little detail in verse 15. Verse 15, And Shalom the son of Kol Hazay, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired, what? The fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars, and he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Do you know what Nehemiah is talking about? It's okay if you don't. He's talking about a place that the New Testament called the Pool of Siloam. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. He put some spit on the ground, he touched the man's eyes, and then he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. To which John adds, Jesus, he went and he washed and he came back seeing. It was a place of healing for him. Now here's what happened to Israel. For centuries, the people of Israel abused the weak. They exploited the vulnerable inside the walls of the city. They made excuses for it. They covered it up. They hid behind things like attorney-client privilege and statutes of limitation. And so God tore down their walls. He tore down their walls as an outward expression of an inward reality. The walls, the spiritual walls of the city protecting the weak and the vulnerable were destroyed long before the Babylonians ever arrived. 
And so, when Nehemiah and his friends are rebuilding the city, they're saying, we're going to build a new kind of city. This city is going to be different. In this city, the abusers don't get to come inside and abuse God's people. And the bullies and the predators don't get to come inside without any repercussion. There are walls here. There's a pool here. They can wash in the pool of Siloam. The people of God who are hurting and broken and discouraged can bathe in the waters of God's grace and they will be made whole again. That's the church that God wants us to build. A church where hurting people can heal. Here's the fourth big idea. God wants us to build a church where guests are welcome. Now, I don't have a specific verse to cite for this one, but did you notice how many gates were in the wall? There are nine gates in the wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Do you know why? Well, at the risk of stating the obvious, I think it's because God really wanted people to come inside. If you look around the building, we got a lot of doors here. Why? We want to make sure that you can come inside. We want a church where people are welcome. From the very beginning, God created the city of Jerusalem not to be an insulated, isolated community, but to be a city on a hill, a light to the nations. He wanted people to stream into the city of Jerusalem so that everyone on earth could see the glory of God and experience the grace of God. It's been said many times that the church is the one organization on earth that exists for people who are not members of the organization If you're a guest here this morning, you're not a member of the church, you are welcome here. If you're not a Christian and somebody brought you along, your parents, your grandparents, your neighbor, and you're just not sure what you believe, you are welcome here. Now, we want you to come and become a believer. I'm not hiding the ball on that. I have no secret agenda. I'm very clear. I want you to believe in Jesus. But wherever you are, you can come here. And my belief is that if you will quiet yourself before the throne of God's grace, you will hear the voice of God. He will reveal himself to you. Whether it is a still, small voice or a loud, majestic shout. He will welcome you to the kingdom of God. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's grace is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us when we were outsiders. He loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we were outside the gate of the city. In fact, Jesus died outside the city so that outsiders like us might be brought in to the city of God. So that outsiders might become insiders, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but because our God is gracious and good. Now you might be thinking, I don't know about this. I don't know about church. I don't know about Jesus. I don't know if I belong here. 
you do. That's why there's so many gates. That's why there's so many doors. Jesus wants you to come inside, and so do we. We're building a culture where guests are welcome. Here's the fifth one, fifth big idea, last one. God wants us to build a church where everybody helps. Just look at this story, how many people built the wall. I counted 39 named people. Now, full disclosure, I only counted once. So if you go back and say, well, actually, there's 41, you may be right. I didn't have it in me to count again. But 39 named people, at least, who built the city of God. We also have a group of Tekoites, a group of Levites. One guy brought his daughters, which I think is kind of cool. There were men from Jericho. There were men from Gibeon. There were some perfumers. There were some politicians. There were some priests. A goldsmith helped out. A goldsmith built the city of God. They were all volunteers. They all worked together. And together, after 52 days of pulling in the same direction, they finished the job. In order for us to fulfill God's mission for our church, in order for us to make joyful, connected, outward-facing disciples of Jesus Christ in every nation and every neighborhood of the world. We need a church where everybody helps. Now, it is absolutely true that sometimes God calls the gifted. I think Nehemiah fits that bill. He was a gifted person, a great leader, loved the Lord, vision for the city. But I think most of the time, God gifts the called. That's what's happening in Nehemiah 3. In Nehemiah 3, a bunch of ordinary people built the city of God. Nobody said, I can't help, I'm just a perfumer. Nobody said, I can't help, I'm a priest. Nobody said, I can't help, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a woman, and women don't normally rebuild the city of God. They didn't in those days anyway. Everybody helped. Everybody was on board. Everyone was on the team. If you are a Christian, you have gifts and talents and abilities and a calling, and we need you. The church needs you, and your family needs you, and our city needs you, and our world needs you to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, then you need Jesus. First you need Jesus, and then you need the church in that order. And at the end of the day, when God's Spirit rushes down on it, like it rushed down on the early disciples in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost, we can together build the city of God. Because it's not about us. It's about us working together, empowered by the Spirit of God. Jerusalem became an amazing city. The leaders of Jerusalem got their hands dirty. And for the people of Jerusalem, the gospel came first. It was a place where hurting people were healed and guests were welcome. It was a place where everybody worked together for the glory of God. What if our church 
could become that type of church? And what if our city could become that type of city? And what if our world could become that kind of world? Wouldn't that be amazing? Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we believe. Help our unbelief. I ask, Lord, that you would shape us and mold us. That we would live differently because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for building the city of Jerusalem. Thank you for taking our broken lives and putting us back together again. We give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.